midnight, I, I ate two jars of pickles. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm so thirsty. Uh, anyway, would you all pray with me? Gracious and almighty God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people say. In case any of you are wondering, I don't dress like this on Sundays in, in order to get girls. And I'm not up here Sunday after Sunday because I'm an extrovert. Truth be told, I hate public speaking. It's why I never eat before worship. I have felt physically ill every Sunday morning for 20 years this September. I'm up here. I do this because I believe. I really do. Like I preached a couple of weeks ago, I don't just believe God raised Jesus from the dead. I know Christ is alive because I've met him. Or rather, he met me. The risen Christ encountered me and upended my life. I believe. I really do. I believe the risen Christ is the crucified Christ who died for me. I believe that he is my full and final forgiveness. I believe his perfect permanent record is mine. I believe he's Lord. I have faith in Christ. But not always. Not always. The first time I lost my faith... I was a second-year student in seminary, and I'd been a solo pastor for three months when a member of my tiny little United Methodist congregation outside of Princeton, New Jersey, went home one Sunday after the 10 o'clock worship service, climbed downstairs to his basement, spread out the plastic tarp that was still dirty from a long-ago family camping trip, unlocked the deer rifle to which he'd once taught his son to hunt in the Pine Barrens, sat down in a wrought iron lawn chair, And with a flick, he managed to pull down all four corners of the sky onto his family. His name was Glenn. Sitting in Glenn's kitchen that Sunday afternoon, I noticed the appointments and to-dos written on a Philadelphia Phillies calendar next to the black rotary phone on the wall. A shopping list with scotched tape on his fridge door next to faded three-by-five photos and postcards. He needed eggs and creamer. I sat there with my hands on the pink formica tabletop, acutely aware that I was in no way prepared to do anything for them. Not only because I had such little training, but because suddenly I had such little faith. In my homily a few days later, I said exactly what the family had ordered me to say. You would have thought he had gone peacefully in his sleep after a long and happy life. I preached about faith. 
about not losing faith in the providential purposes of God, about keeping faith in the love and mercy of God who shares our grief in Jesus Christ. I was about eight minutes into my first ever funeral sermon when I realized that what I was saying wasn't true. True for me. Felt like my faith had been amputated from me. I could remember what it felt like to have it as a part of me, and now all I could feel was it's, it's not thereness. And after a while, I realized that might be a problem for a preacher. And nothing changed for a couple of months. I didn't know what to do. I thought about dropping out of seminary. I applied to, to teach school in New York City. I applied to work at a dude ranch in Montana. Seriously. I made the mistake of sharing my dilemma with my ordination mentor here in Virginia. He very helpfully suggested that maybe I shouldn't be a pastor after all. I confided to a retired minister who didn't seem to understand and who, without a trace of irony, suggested that if I had lost my faith, at least I could still teach at a seminary. You know, what they didn't understand was I I wasn't worried about my career. I just wanted my faith back. And that was the first time I lost it. But it's hardly been the only time. It vanished once again one afternoon a few years ago. After a year of surgery and and seven rounds of stage serious chemo, when all was supposed to be on the mend, I was standing in a hotel bathroom that overlooked the Birdland Jazz Club on 44th Street in New York City, and I discovered yet another lump on my body. I turned the shower on and the fan so my kids wouldn't hear me crying, and then I sat down on the cold tile floor, and I did what Job's wife dared her husband to do. I cursed God. A few years before I got cancer, I was at opening day with my boys. When we got back home, I got a call that one of my confirmation students, a sixth grader named Jack, was in the ER at Mount Vernon Hospital. Maybe it's already too late, the neighbor said. And when I got there, he was gone. Jack's mom was on the bed with, his arm, with her arms wrapped around him, telling him how much she loved him and how much everyone loved him. And for I don't know how long, I held Jack's hand and I rubbed his hair and I tried to get the words out. I tried telling him how funny and special and alive I thought he was. Would you pray? Jack's mom asked, looking up at me desperately. And only because I didn't have the heart to refuse her, I prayed to the God in whom my faith was suddenly in very short supply. I share those stories not to be dark or lurid, but because we all have seasons in our lives. We all have seasons in our lives when, as Bilbo Baggins laments to Gandalf, we feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. 
You know, maybe you're a, a college student who was recently thrown into the, the deep end of science and history and philosophy, and you can't help but wonder if maybe Christianity is stuck on the shallow side of the pool. Perhaps you've just lived through a global pandemic that's killed millions of the world's most vulnerable people. And like Woody Allen, you suspect that God, if he exists, is, is basically an underachiever. You could be an African-American struggling with with this faith. After seeing so many who who share it lured away by the idols of of racism and, and Christian nationalism. You might be a news junkie who has grown disillusioned with the church after discovering the hypocrisy and greed and abuse and corruption and partisanship of so many Christian leaders. Maybe it's as simple as your kids are out of the house. And now you're not sure if what you thought was faith was actually more of a habit. Unless you are Jesus Christ himself, we all have times in our lives when our faith feels as empty as a dial tone. And for many of us, most of the time, our faith feels as, as, as fragile as a house of cards. And that might be a very big problem, because today the scripture declares that everything, everything comes down to faith. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here is rebutting the false teachers who've led the churches in Galatia astray from the gospel and convinced them that having put their faith in Christ's shed blood, their acceptance by God now depends on keeping the commandments. See, the reason we can never assume the gospel and and move on to our preferred topics and, and personal projects is that even the best of us are attracted to false gospels. As Paul noted in our text last Sunday, even Peter, even Peter, the the rock on whom Jesus said he would build his church, even Peter, when pressured by the false teachers to add to the gospel, fell away from the true gospel. In our text today, the Apostle Paul's rejection of the false teachers' gospel takes the form of a rebuke of Peter. We ourselves, as in you and I, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and and not Gentile sinners, yet we know from our uh, scriptures and from our personal experience, we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justified. As the Anglican evangelical author John Stott writes, nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word, justification. It's dikaiosune in Greek. It occurs as a verb three times in verse 16 today, and again as a noun in verse 21. It's a a term borrowed from the law court. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which God puts a sinner right with God, not only by pardoning him or acquitting him, but by treating him as innocent, even as righteous. 
Justification names God's gracious intervention in Christ to bring us back into alignment with himself. It's about a a restoration of relationship, which means... Which means, apart from being justified, you and I are not in right relationship with God. No, that that, that puts our circumstances too benignly. As Paul asked rhetorically in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? Answer, none. Now, it doesn't square with the the watered-down, cotton-candy Christianity of our culture, which basically says God loves you and accepts you just the way you are. It doesn't square with that. But the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end is that apart from being justified, we are all under the judgment, the just sentence of God, alienated from his fellowship and banished from his presence. Have a nice day. You know, we all love the verse where Jesus declares that he did not come into the world to condemn the world. We forget that the very next verse is where Jesus explains that he did not come into the world to condemn the world because the world already stands condemned. That's you and me Jesus is talking about. That this is so means the most urgent question for us is the one Bildad asks Job in the book of Job. How then can a mortal be justified before God? The false teachers in Galatia said, and a a whole lot of progressive and conservative churches today say, uh, the false teachers said, believe in Jesus and do everything God commands and abstain from everything God forbids. In other words, have faith and make yourself righteous by performing the works of the law. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 10 as seeking to establish a justification of our own. How then can a mortal be justified before God? The false teacher said, believe in Christ and keep the commandments. The gospel says, faith. That's it. Through faith alone you are justified. And only through faith are you justified. Faith is the single, sole, solitary means by which the just sentence of God is lifted from your head. Exclusively by faith does God, who is righteous, accept you, who is unrighteous. Here's my question. And it brings us back to our original dilemma. Is this good news? Is it a a comfort that the gospel takes away all other avenues of being justified and leaves only the narrow door of faith? Does it ease your anxiety at all that Paul takes all the chips, pushes them to the center of the table, and bets the house on faith alone? I mean, faith is not a constant for any of us. Faith cannot be forced. We cannot will ourselves to believe something we don't believe. Nor can we prevent doubt and unbelief from overwhelming us like the nothingness that comes creeping over everything in the never-ending story. If your enoughness hinges on faith only, is that good news? I mean, how do you know? 
How do you know if you really have faith? How much faith is saving faith? Is it your faith today that justifies you? Is it your faith on your your best day that, that justifies you? Or is it faith on your last day that really matters? I get approached by people all the time, some of the people in this room, about redoing their baptism because they're not certain they really believed when they first believed. But who can ever be your certain? The Bible says we are strangers to ourselves. And what about those people, and there are a lot of you here, I know, what about those people who want to have faith, who've prayed for faith, but who, for whatever reason, find that that faith eludes them? Is it really good news that the gospel takes away the works of the law, good deeds that we can do and see done and measure and quantify? Is it really good news that the gospel instead makes our acceptance by God hang on as delicate a thread as our faith in Jesus Christ? Then again, is that what the Apostle Paul is really saying here? You know, that first time I lost my faith, it went missing for months. Eventually, I confessed the dilemma to a theology teacher I trusted, Dr. Daryl Guder. I lingered after class one day. You look like a gentleman who has something on his mind, he said, gesturing me to sit back down. Dr. Guter had a thick magnum P.I. mustache and the, the crooked accent of an American who has taught in Germany for most of his career. And at first I, I told him everything I, I told you before. And I guess what I was expecting was for him to, to pull out some psychological method from his pastor's toolbox to, to break my spiritual logjam. I expected a, an ordinary people, goodwill hunting sort of breakthrough. Instead, he he, he gave me the shortest and most important Bible study of my life. I've lost my faith, I told him, wrapping up my story. And he just smiled and chuckled and patted me on my knee and said, Don't worry, Jason, it'll come back to you. In the meantime, thank your lucky stars that it's not your faith that justifies you. It's not your faith that justifies you. He didn't even... Crack open a New Testament or or, or cite Galatians 2.16. But that 10-second Bible study, for me, it's been like that scene in the movie Twister when Bill Paxton ties himself with his belt to a well as the tornadoes pass all around him. It's been an anchor. And it's held every time. Now, according to the translation you heard this morning, it sounds like Paul is saying that it's our faith in Jesus Christ that justifies us. But there's two problems with that understanding. The first problem is that it makes your faith into a work, thereby replicating the Galatian heresy. If it's something we do, faith, that justifies us, then by definition, we are self-justifying. The second problem with this understanding is that it does not comport with the literal meaning of the text. That is, it's not what Paul says in the original Greek. So, buckle up, you're going to have to do some work now. The relevant words here in Greek are pistis, faith, Christu, Christ, and Yesu, Jesus. 
Now, there is a way in Greek to communicate our faith in Jesus Christ. It's eis Christon Yesun. And Paul knows how to speak of our faith in Jesus Christ because eis Christon Yesun is how Paul puts it in the middle of verse 16. In Christ Jesus we have believed. But eis Christon Yesun is not the construction that Paul uses at the beginning and the end of verse 16. In those other instances where Paul speaks of our justification by faith, it's dia pisteos Christo Yesu and ek pisteos Christu Yesu. Even though many contemporary versions of the Bible get it wrong, any first-semester Greek student can attest to this. In terms of grammar, pisteos Christu Yesu is a subjective genitive. Meaning, Christu Yesu is the subject of the word pistis, not the object. Christ Jesus is the subject of the word faith. It's not the object. It's a subjective genitive. At the top and bottom of verse 16 today, Paul's not referring to our faith in Jesus Christ, but to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Skeptical? Don't believe me? Allow me to phone a friend, a very impressive friend. Listen to the King James Bible. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. See, Paul's not saying that it's your faith in Jesus that puts you right with God. Why would Paul say that? That makes you your own Savior. Paul's saying that it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that justifies you. It's not believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be justified. It's in Jesus Christ you're justified. Believe it. And of course, that's what Paul would say, because his whole gripe with the false teachers over adding works to the gospel is that that Christ alone is the saving work. Christ alone is the saving work, and that his work is reckoned to you not as your wage, but as a gift, as grace. Paul's entire point here is that those who who worry about cheap grace and, and add oughts and shoulds onto the gospel, they actually cheapen grace because the basis on which God lifts the just sentence against you and accepts you, sinner that you are, the basis on which God does that is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and nothing else. His faithfulness. His faithful life stands in as your own obedience to the law, as though you yourself had done it. And his faithful death serves as the substitute for your own disobedience, as though he himself had done it. This is why T.S. Eliot calls the cross of Christ the, the still point of the turning world, because it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that puts all things right. And like I said at the top, I've been preaching now for 20 years. Long enough to know that the question many of you will ask next is, 
well, if it's the faith of Jesus Christ and not my own faith that justifies me, then, then what good does my faith do? Faith grasps a hold of Christ's faithfulness. That's actually the meaning of that middle phrase here in verse 16. It's literally, we have believed into Jesus Christ. Into Jesus Christ. In other words, faith grabs on to the faithful one, Jesus Christ. As Martin Luther put it, faith clings to baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is the faithful work of Jesus Christ applied to you. Such that now, no matter your sin, no matter your doubts and unbelief, no matter your spotty performance as a disciple, no matter if your puny faith makes a mustard seed look like a mountain, by his faithfulness applied to you through water and the word, you are in Christ now. Believe in that. Put your faith in that. Cling to that. You know, when life sends twisters swirling all around you. Grab a hold of that. It will hold. What good is your faith? John Stott answers, Faith has absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, the mouth that drinks the water of life. And the more clearly we see the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ's divine human person and sin-bearing death, the more incongruous does it appear that anybody could suppose that we, with our faith, have anything to offer. Two years ago, two years ago I was here on my way home after worship one Sunday when a a distraught stranger wandered into the atrium out there and, in broken English, explained that he was looking for a place to bury his newborn niece. A few days later, outside in the church cemetery, I, I threw a fistful of dirt. I intoned ashes to ashes and earth to earth. I made it a sign of the cross over the casket. And then I watched and I waited and I waited, I waited, as family members pulled that baby's weeping mother away from the short, open grave. If the kingdom had come that afternoon, and everything hinged on my faith, the odds were not in my favor. But if everything depends on Christ... On his faithfulness? And I'm pretty confident. Even in my doubt, even with my unbelief, I can be certain. So hear the good news. If the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is your enoughness before a holy and righteous God, if the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is your enoughness, then you never need worry about whether or not you have enough faith. Get out of your insides and grab a hold of him. Offer it to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.